Mr. Schiller, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You've had such a diverse background. Your career paths have taken you in so many different ways. Why did you choose to pursue the career paths that you ultimately chose? Well, well first, I was born in 1936. So I grew up after World War II in a small community called San Diego, California. What was unique about San Diego during World War II was that that was the location of embarkation where the Navy shipped off everybody for the war in the South Pacific. And there was also a unique community because that's where the armament was made for the shipment out into the Pacific. Convair and other major corporations just lined the major streets with factories. Uh, I went to grammar school there. And in junior high school, uh, I started getting really bad, bad grades. Uh, I can honestly say I had a D minus in all my classes. I couldn't read very well. I couldn't write uh, what was in my mind. Uh, and it was hard for me to uh, you know, finish reading three paragraphs in a textbook or a pamphlet. Uh, I didn't know at that time, and I didn't know for some 50 some odd years that I had a severe case of dyslexia. The word dyslexia didn't exist in those days in 1943, 45, 50, so forth. By the time I get to junior high school, still with, with bad grades, uh, I started to use a camera that my father had given me for a bar mitzvah present. And I had to do something. Uh, and in those days, the police radio calls for police cars were at the end of the FM band. And therefore I'd listen to it. And if there was an accident close by to where we lived at that time in Pacific Beach, a suburb of San Diego, I'd get on my bicycle with my camera and I'd drive to the accident. By the time I got to the accident, everything had been towed away. The ambulance had taken people away if, if they were injured. Nothing was left except skid marks. And I'd go to lots of these accidents and I'd photograph skid marks. What I didn't realize at that time is that I was learning about lighting. Backlighting on a skid mark shows the oil a little better. Diffused light if it was overcast. Night light if it was sunset and the lights had come on. It wasn't long before I realized that I was understanding and I was really learning about lighting and photography in a very unique way. And then somebody said to me, you know, your pictures of skid marks tell a story. They tell the story of what happened in the accident, who hit who, who was going faster than the other. And what I started to do in junior high school was to sell the pictures to insurance companies. And that's how I made my first money. And I remember my father saying to me, well, if you 
earn enough money to pay for half of a car, I'll pay for the other half. And by the time I got into my first year of high school, or my second, I'd earned enough money selling pictures to insurance companies that my father bought a Ford for four and a half thousand dollars, and I was able to pay for half of it. And then, of course, I started working in high school, La Jolla High School, where I went to school for the La Jolla Light newspaper. And after that, you know, I was on a treadmill. I couldn't get off the treadmill. I was very fortunate because in San Diego, there were a lot of fine athletes. Florence Padwick had just swam the English Channel, the first woman to do so. Jean Littler was a famous golfer who resided there. Mo Conley had won Wimbledon in the Nationals from San Diego. And I photographed all these people for the local newspapers. And that's how I got started in photojournalism. Now, I'll get into the some in some of the specifics, uh, stories and people that you've covered. More broadly, how has journalism changed over the past decade or so, perhaps even two decades? Has it lost credibility? Photojournalism has really not lost any credibility, but gained credibility because now right. there aren't 20,000 photographers around the world, but there are 20 million people with iPhones. And iPhones are more honest in preserving and recording what's taken place. Now, if you're talking about the written word, and we're talking about quick journalism, an event happens, a journalist covers it, and it's published in the next day's newspaper, or a week later in Time Magazine or Life Magazine, that or Newsweek. That journalism has somewhat disappeared because television, and I have—I knew Ted Turner when he started CNN. I worked for him. Ted Turner started, you know, the bowling ball down the alley with a new form of instant journalism. And instant journalism really produces opinions. And eventually CNN and the, the advent of technology, social media has completely in some ways wiped out true direct reporting because everybody is a journalist. And therefore you have a lot of people that are as not as well trained as the highly skilled professionals. And there are less professionals wanting to go into that business because of social media. I want to pivot to some of the specific stories that you covered. Why do you think to this day, so many Americans believe in the JFK murder conspiracy. What is your position on that? Well, number one, your listeners, viewers should know that I was very quickly at the JFK assassination within three hours after JFK was shot. I was actually on the third floor of the Dallas police station before Lee Harvey Oswald was brought in for the first time. And I was there when Oswald's man, Carcana Dunn, 
was shown to the world for the first time. I went on to befriend and become a friend of Marina Oswald. She would bring her children to vacation with my children. We even once went on the Colorado River. And then prior to that, I was even involved with Jack Ruby, acquiring the rights to his life story, publishing it, working with his brother Earl Ruby after he passed on, Elmer Gertz, his attorney, who was Clarence Darrow's law partner. So I look at the, the assassination from the inside. The bullet fragments that were taken from the skull and the brain of JFK and a neutron activation test match the neutron activations inside the barrel of the Manlik Arcana that was found on the sixth floor of the book depository. So we know that those bullets, to the exclusion of all other bullets, came from that gun. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence from a palm print to fingerprints that anybody else except Lee Harvey Oswald fired that gun from the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. But why are there conspiracy theories? Why do people believe in it? Number one, there was a gentleman on the overpass, S.M. Holland was his name, and he claimed he saw a puff of smoke to the left of the grassy knoll, slightly above where Abraham Zapruder took those historic eight millimeter movies of the assassination in progress. So the puff of smoke, which was reported the very same day as the assassination, before the evidence had even been determined that Oswald was the lone assassin, scientifically, the evidence, everybody was talking about, ah, a bullet came from there. Now, the second reason that they believe in the conspiracy is because the way JFK's head went down and how it snapped back. And they, the conspiracy theorists, believe that the snap back is because of the bullet that came from the grassy knoll and pushed his head back. But 99.9% .9 of the world doesn't know that JFK was wearing a back brace. He virtually always wore a back brace when he was in public because he had these extreme back problems. There are photographs, and I even made one, of him being lifted on a forklift to get in to Air Force One because he couldn't climb the steps. And scientifically, it's been proven that when he was shot from the back, from the sixth floor, his head went down and snapped back because of the back brace. That is why you have the snap. But 99% of the world doesn't know that JFK was wearing a back brace. So all of these facts and lack of information or the proper information 
to surround the facts lead to speculation and rumor. The third reason probably is the most important. It's hard for us to believe that one man could kill a president that at that time in the world was so revered, not only in this country, but throughout our civilization. And it's hard for us to understand that one person without any real serious political motives could do such a horrendous act. Now, there's a very important fact that leads others like myself to believe that Oswald did it to the exclusion of everybody else. And that was that approximately three months before, if my memory is right, on the date, but the facts are, is that he took a shot at General Walker, a very conservative right-wing person living in Dallas who had previous military experience. And he missed hitting Walker. He was down by the train tracks shooting up at Walker, who he saw in the window. If he had succeeded in killing Walker, just like the JFK assassination, the chances are 99% that he would have been caught. And JFK would never have been shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. Who motivated Oswald? A gentleman who lived in Florida by the name of Demora Shield. And when Demora Shield years later was called by the I believe the House Committee or the Senate on assassinations prior to him leaving to go to Washington because he was subpoenaed, he took a gun and shot himself in the head. The Morris Shield knew all about the General Walker assassination. And in my personal interviews of Marina, Marina told me when we went and did a timeline a week before, two weeks before, a month before, three months before. She remembers Oswald sitting on the porch, the second floor of 214 Neely Street and listening to the radio three months before, two months before, listening every day as if he's waiting for something. And of course he was waiting to hear the news that somebody had killed General Walker. Well, there was no news whatsoever broadcast or written that Walker had even been shot at. And that was because the people surrounding Walker didn't want to open that door to the public. So Oswald sat there on that porch and Marina tells me in her interviews how he had this gun that was laying over eventually on the corner. And as you know, Marina herself shot the picture in the side yard at 214 Neely Street of him holding the Manly Carcana gun and a pistol. Now, Lenny Bruce was 
prosecuted, persecuted effectively for telling dirty jokes. You've written a ton about Lenny Bruce, and obviously you're familiar with his story very closely. We'd like to think that that can't happen these days, right? Folks can't go to jail for telling dirty jokes. There is something in the world now called cancel culture. Is that something in the same vein uh, of what Lenny Bruce went through? Very few people know that Lenny was a kid from Brooklyn. And he grew up on the streets of New York where the word, oh, two is a preposition, come as a verb, was a joke. To come, to come, to come. But he was persecuted for that. Today, if somebody saw a photograph of Jacqueline Kennedy on the back of the limousine after JFK was killed, reaching for the FBI agent, and he interpreted that photograph humorously, she was hauling ass to save her ass. He was persecuted for that because the culture didn't want to think that way at that time. Now, I think because of social media, because of the motion picture industry of becoming more liberal, you know, they had a code in those days that you couldn't have two people in the same bed. They had to be in separate beds on the screen. And as our society became more educated, as people became more open in their thinking as to the positive nature of expressing themselves properly, those taboos went away. To me, the most interesting thing about Lenny Bruce is when he didn't have very much money, and I'll tell you who helped him in a minute, and he went to law school at Northwestern to learn about appeal law, how he could appeal his cases and argue them himself in front of the courts. And there's a very famous incident, I believe, when he's arguing in front of Thurgood Marshall. And he says, I'm being deprived of my civil rights. Looking at this esteemed black jurist, he makes the argument that I'm being deprived of my civil rights because no nightclub will hire me because they're afraid their liquor licenses will be taken away. And that is what has happened in the past. And of course, he won that appeal. Lenny Bruce had some very incredible supporters in corners that you would never realize. We know the name Hugh Hefner from Playboy magazine. And in those days, before Penthouse, liberal photographs of young ladies, the girls next door. But you know, if you look at the fiction and the writing that Hefner published in the 60s, 50s, late 50s and 60s, Styron, Ray Bradbury, 
He was the first to publish 451, Fahrenheit 451. Very few people know that he came to the financial aid of Lenny Bruce and helped finance his legal representation when he needed it. Playboy magazine today, again, has become passe. In 1986, at a time when it was unheard of, you worked with the Russian government to produce and direct Peter the Great. You are not a politician. You're not a political analyst. What do you see happening in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Well, first, let's give your audience some context of my venture into the Soviet Union, okay? I saw a book, which I just read a couple of paragraphs called Peter the Great by Robert Massey. I had just made an award-winning film from a book that Norman Mailer did with me called The Executioner's Song. And it had done very well. And Brandon Tartikoff said to me one day, what's next, Larry? When you get good ratings, you know, you hit a home run, come up to the plate. So I saw this story from a, a very interesting point of view. We had just seen Roots on television by Alex Haley. But we knew nothing of the roots of the Soviet Union that were on the front page of the newspaper every single day whether it was Cuba, was it this or that. So I decided I'd like to do the roots of Russia. And I want to do it in Russian. I had a friend who knew Armin Hammer, who had very fine relationships from a very young age with the Soviet Union. And I went and saw Robert, I went and saw Armin Hammer in London, and he granted me a breakfast meeting. And he told me and he educated me on how I should approach the Soviets. And I followed his advice to a T. And I built very good relationships with the government, with internal security, with the KGB as a name that we use and throw around and the GRU. And I made a film that was in many ways successful. And I went back and made three more films in the Soviet Union. And when Robert Hansen, the mole, the Russian mole in the FBI was caught, I picked up the phone and I called the head of the KGB. Actually, I sent him an email saying, on such and such day, I'm going to give you a call. I hope you will accept my communication or something, something like that. You don't just pick up the phone and call. You always send, in those days, an email, a letter, you know, courier or whatever, saying you'd like to have a meeting. And I believe it was Begotten who took my call and accepted the invitation for Norman Mailer and I to come to the Soviet Union and look at the 
the files on Robert Hansen, just like we had been granted permission to look at the KGB files on Lee Harvey Oswald years before Yeltsin gave them to President Clinton. And what is your position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, I have not kept up with contemporary politics in the Soviet Union. If I, as a layman, would venture to guess, I would say that the Soviet Union was losing its dominance in many, many parts of the world, which they had enjoyed maybe for a century. And they had to, had to show that they were the superpower of the world. And I think it was a miscalculation that the president, Putin, thought that nobody would come to the aid of the Ukraine and he'd just be able to roll over like he had done, what was it, in 2014 when he annexed part of Ukraine. I'd actually filmed in Ukraine. I, I, I did part of Peter the Great there in Odessa, the underwater scenes. And we photographed many, many parts of the Ukraine because at that time it was part of the Soviet Union. I think it was a great miscalculation. His military advisors actually obviously thought that nobody would come to the aid of the Ukraine. And here we are, still butting heads a year and a half later. Why did the O.J. Simpson trial take this country by storm? Because it was the first truly murder case with a celebrity that was broadcast 24 hours, seven days a week. Everything that took place in the courtroom. Uh, Lance Ito, the judge, allowed court TV that was just starting. Dan Abrams, it was like his first job. I mean, his father's a very famous First Amendment attorney, the Pentagon Papers. It was his first job. They convinced Court TV, convinced the judge that there should be a camera in the courtroom. And that's why it just consumed the world. My involvement in that case, you know, was I had a relationship with Robert Kardashian. And my kids were going to school with Kimmy and Chloe and so forth at that time. And so I saw that case from the inside, not from the television screen. And I wrote a book called American Tragedy, which with James Woolworth of Time Magazine, since I'm dyslexic, I can dictate, I can speak, but you know, I needed a good writer to work with me. And James Woolworth, who I respect tremendously, had covered inside day by day the trial for time. And I was behind the scenes with Kardashian and the defense and so forth. So we had a very unique way of putting the book together. And fortunately, the public 
responded by making it a number one New York Times bestseller. What was your assessment of what came to be known as the Dream Team? The what came to be known as what? What was your assessment of what came to be known as the Dream Team? I put that in quotes. Oh, the Dream Team. Oh. Yeah. Well, number one, that comes about because uh, he had the money and was able to obtain the money to hire the best lawyers at that time. Shapiro was a shrewd local national attorney who knew the LAPD. Effley Bailey was the king of torts from San Francisco on a national scale. They had an appeal attorney who was brilliant. They had an attorney, Bob Blazer from, from uh, Sacramento who knew DNA like the back of his hand and taught Barry Sheck everything he needed to know to present it to the jury. And the greatest asset they had was that Garcia, the district attorney of LA, had made a, the biggest mistake of his career by putting a spousal abuse attorney to prosecute the case and not a seasoned criminal attorney. And Marsha Clark didn't know how to surround herself with the talent to present the evidence properly. Where does the John Benet Ramsey investigation bring us to today? Well, the Ramsey case is very interesting as I wrote in a book called Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. When you have a very, very, very strong conservative, what we would call right-wing police department and a very, very liberal district attorney's office and district attorney. The cops felt that the mother, Patricia, Pat Ramsey, had done it from day one. They had their evidence. As Steve Thomas, the lead detective on the case, said to me in an interview, all I had to do was throw her in jail and I would have broken her. Well, the DA didn't feel that there was sufficient evidence to have her arrested and thrown in jail. And a year and two years later, if my memory is right about the date, even when the grand jury was called and listened to all the evidence and concluded that there was sufficient evidence to prosecute Patricia Ramsey, with very interesting word, because she contributed to the death of her daughter, something to that effect. They didn't say that she had committed the act, all right? The DA refused to arrest Patricia Ramsey. And in his press conference that he held outside the courthouse, 
he had very interesting wording. There is not sufficient evidence to arrest her. He didn't say what the grand jury had recommended. A very liberal Alex Hunter, who went on to teach at in Boulder, Colorado, and recently passed on, I believe. And if he didn't, I apologize. Mr. Schiller, this has been fascinating. Uh, you are an American treasure, and I thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for uh, the courtesy of having me uh, in this discussion.